Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out at hpaonline.com. The HPA has a lot of great virtual content coming out right now, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. And for anyone tuning in for the first time that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they're a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. But if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are, or who I am for that matter, you can check out episode one of this podcast series. I won't make you listen to a full breakdown of that every episode. So we're here today to talk about some of the workflow, automation, and behind the scenes work on what went into the movie Terminator Dark Fate. More specifically, Premiere Pro, some of the collaboration, VFX shot management, and the inside scoop on various versions of the cut for international release. But before we get into all that, let me introduce our two guests here with us today. We have VFX editor John Carr, who's worked on Mile 22, Only the Brave, the new Top Gun movie Maverick, and of course, Terminator Dark Fate. And we've also got assistant editor Matt Carson here with us today, who's worked on Deadpool, Date Night, Night at the Museum, Real Steel, and of course, Terminator Dark Fate. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. All right. So one thing I always like to ask, regardless of the focus of the show, because it's always interesting to see which camera companies seem to be leading the market is, what was this job shot on camera-wise? I think uh, maybe, a, maybe a better question would be, what camera was this not yeah. shot on? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How many formats okay. did we have? <laughs> I think I think at the end of the day, and Matt can Matt Matt would be a better judge of this, but I think it was twenty six different uh, unique camera formats for for Terminator. Dark yeah, Day. yeah. Holy smokes! It was you know I mean every camera possible, but then it was frame rates and and formats of spherical and and anamorphic. Uh, we could we could easily go through the list with you. I don't know if, if you want to talk about some of those john or you want me to was there a main one that like okay a cam body was this i think that the main cam was the alexa lf i think it was yeah. one of the first jobs that when the it was a relatively new camera and that was one of the first jobs that this camera was used on so i'd say that predominant most of it was alexa lf but you know you had reds you had yeah, canons yeah. you had gopros you had you had all kinds of stuff going yeah we did like it's like the canon c300 dgi drone infrared drone like red helium red dragon uh Alexa SXT, <laughs> Alexa Mini, uh, it was everything. <laughs> and then spherical modes wow. and anamorphic okay. modes for every single thing. Uh, and, you know, our, our main format was anamorphic, but, you know, on the spherical modes, we had like 10% offsets. Made dailies very interesting. No doubt. Who was the company that did the dailies on that? Colorfront up in Budapest was our dailies house. And then Company 3 was our online facility at the end. Interesting. Yeah, if there's someone that can also make slight shifts or modifications to the software to make any of that work, it's them. That's yep. one of the reasons I love working with them. And, and we use, at the company I work at, we use their software because I just feel like it's really amazing at dailies because they do dailies. So they understand it inside and out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it made it a lot easier, especially with all these formats, because you've, you know, customizing a workflow around all those formats. It's it gets a little tricky trying to figure out what the best way to do everything was. Yeah. So uh, but it, it went really, really smooth. Interesting. OK, so let's get into some of the premiere stuff. So I'd say about ninety nine point 
99% of the jobs that I work on are all Avid based. I feel like you've got Avid, the industry vet that you trust. You know it works for all of your typical high-end jobs expectations. And many people would probably say when you get to a certain level for features or TV shows, it's all Avid for editing. But then what's interesting to me is you get the odd massive job like this where Premiere Pro is used. So I'm just curious, was this a decision that your editor made or how exactly did you go down the Adobe rabbit hole? So Matt would obviously, Matt's, Matt's worked with Tim, the director, a little bit longer than I have. But I think Tim's a kind of a disciple of David Fincher and Fincher team has been on Premiere for many years. And, and so I think when Tim originally did Deadpool, he reached out to Fincher and said, hey, what do you think? And uh, Fincher was like, hey, you should go with Premiere. And so that's where it all began. And, and Matt can probably attest and talk more about the Deadpool experience. But I think both Matt and I have had unique experiences in terms of doing a lot of these Premiere shows over the years and kind of seen the evolution of you know the collaboration features and some of the newer things that have recently dropped in Adobe production. We've, we've been the guinea pigs to kind of get that up and running and, and out into the world. Interesting. On the non-scripted side of the company I work at, they use Premiere a little more, but on the scripted side, I'd say the last time my team or I really dealt with Premiere was back in 2018. And at the time, I'm curious to hear how it went on this, because at the time it was a little bit of a pain getting metadata to track through. So I'd be curious how that changed or how you dealt with it, because what our process was, so maybe <clears throat> you can speak to Colorfront, their process from them to you, was that we would actually render out QuickTime files with all tracks of sound and an accompanying XML out of Colorfront software. And then we'd merge those in Premiere because the QuickTime wasn't able to contain much metadata. So we'd merge the XML to get more information into Premiere. But the problem was, at the time, the XML column headers that we'd get out of Colorfront were not named the same as the column headers in Premiere. So the majority of all of this awesome metadata that we had tracked and or captured was kind of lost. So, you know, a lot of like lens metadata and dailies framing information. And, you know, luckily the, the CDLs tracked through, but even the LUT columns, things like that didn't. So I guess full circle, I'm curious what that process was between Colorfront and you and, and how that exchange of metadata worked. Uh, you know, I mean, for us, we didn't really have that much, you know, that many issues as far as the metadata transferring through, um, obviously, because Colorfront, you know, has had some experience in Premiere and, and same with our, our finishing house company three prior to even starting shooting. We all had discussions as far as, you know, what metadata we were going to need to track all the way through, you know, both visually on the picture of, of what metadata we want embedded on there and then also of what metadata in actually Premiere that we were going to have everything in. You know, we had everything tracked through that we needed, source file name, you know, audio timecode, video timecode, sound roll, ASC, CDLs, you know, scene take, all of that was there. From my understanding, and, and I don't know the exact workflow that Colorfront did on their mm -hmm. side, but I know everything that came to us was a premiere project with everything embedded. We had all of our quick times with embedded audio, all the ISOs and the mix track being track mm -hmm. one and all this information being relayed in Premiere for us so that we could have a smooth transition, especially going from one daily's house to a different online company at the end. Sure. We needed to ensure that all of that was gonna go through smoothly. 
Otherwise, we would have been dead in the water. Yeah, I also wonder if they were altering that XML in any way, because I'm pretty sure you could change the XML that gets rendered from the software so that the column yep. headers do actually match. Match up and, and line up. Yeah, I mean, we, we would have them send us ALEs, XMLs. We would have them give us basically everything they had on their end. So that way, if, God forbid, we ever ran into an issue, we would have all the accompanying you know, metadata and, and could look back and reference things. But luckily, knock on wood, we, <laughs> we, never, we never ran into any issues. I see. And were they giving you a project file every day with everything already in there? Or was it just the quick times and the accompanying metadata files? Yeah. So color front, like essentially what we had them do was they would Aspera every single day after dailies. They would give us all the quick times. They would give us a premiere project, an ALE, an XML, all of the original sound recordings. So we had a copy of that. Camera reports, sound reports, production reports. We would have them do, you know, every time they would process a take on their end, they would do a QC report to make sure that there were no glitches or issues. Um, and then that way we had all of this for down the line. And then uh, simultaneously, they would then start sending stuff to company three to start restoring and ingesting on their end to make sure that we had all the media for John to go ahead and start doing pulls throughout production. Oh, was that by sending company three LTO tapes or were there hard, hard drives that yeah. moved that? LTO sevens, yeah. I see. Gotcha. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, John, I don't think you had any metadata issues on your end, right? Certainly, it's not as, as robust as what you guys needed, but in terms of metadata, it was all, you know, everything I needed was there, and, and we could pull from, you know, the information that was embedded and, uh, and populate my FileMaker database for, for tracking VFX shots. Gotcha. The only one little probably gotcha was, you know, we had some, some secondary kind of color correction going on in, in, uh, mm -hmm. uh, during production. And so that didn't necessarily come across in the CDL information. Yeah. So a, a lot of those individual shots had to have uh, uh, CDL information as well as their own unique LUT to be able for, for a company three to be able to match. Oh, and that was able to contain the secondary color correction? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that added a little bit of complication in terms of, of that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, we worked our way through it. It wasn't, wasn't too bad. Yeah. Made it fun. <laughs> Yeah, we're actually doing a job right now where it's really interesting that, you know, there was a lot of secondaries done and LUTs can contain a certain mm -hmm. amount of that secondary color correction, but it is, of course, limited. So what we've been doing that has been actually working, which was very surprising to me, is passing resolve mm -hmm. project files per shot to wow. the vendor because you couldn't contain it in a LUT. And the idea at first was, you know what, we'll do as much as we can with secondaries that'll get passed along and then and then anything outside of that everyone agreed at the top of the job no we don't need it we don't need it and then of course everyone said what's going on it doesn't match and we we're like remember that conversation we had in pre-pro well, yeah if you've, you've but, got the dp wanting you to do a power window somewhere that you need to relay exactly. it, it makes and it difficult then it's, if there's tracking or you know some of these things don't go into a lot so anyways the project file per shot was an interesting solve for that mm -hmm. I, guess, I guess it's everyone has to be on resolve then obviously because some facilities don't exactly and it just it just means though that they they like after they render it let's say it's dpx or something and they want to make quick times for editorial they have to open that project file drop the, the image sequence into mm -hmm. that project file now they can apply the look that was on that particular clip and render at the quick time and how does that how does that impact vfx vendors oh they don't they, they're no you know they don't like it but it's either yeah. that or sorry yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't yeah. get the look. I've never heard of a solution to this, you know, other than that. And we, yeah. 
on on uh, Night at Museum Three, we had a lot of secondary work done, uh, doing a, a workflow on on set. And at the time, because you know our dailies were being done on on a Colorfront software, and then onlining in Resolve, it was like every time they would make a secondary correction, the the dit would go ahead and write a note of like power window on this shot. <laughs> and it was a very manual process throughout. Not not an ideal process, but at least got the. Yeah, you know, done. actually, I, I should take that back. I did work on a job once, BLG's end to end, and it was and it was great in terms of this because if as, if everyone's on board to the film light process, it does work. But you need everybody mm-hmm. to be on board because the idea was we yeah. were using daylight for dailies, and yep. we would create BLG's per shot. And there's a plugin for Nuke, mm-hmm. and they were able to then apply it at the VFX facility, but. You know, the final colorist using base light was a big factor mm-hmm. in the decision to get into the film light world on that one. I mean, it feels like that is often difficult to do in terms of coordinating because usually production is often kind of running and doing their own thing. And, and to have that in place is, is a lot of work, mm-hmm. especially, you know, like a person like myself. I'm not even around at that point when production is just starting to, to try to orchestrate something like that. But it's. Sounds like a really good solution. Well, but but the dailies facility yeah. in, in the in the situation I'm talking about, it was more that the DIT was creating BLGs live because Filmlight has their own. It's pre-light. It's like live grade. They create BLGs, then that goes to the lab. The lab can take that work and finesse it like they normally do. And then at that point, it's a folder full of BLGs. And and at that point, you can either choose to render it and bake it in to all of them XFs that you turn over to editorial, or you could deliver log, and then you could apply the BLGs in editorial. But that was there was a whole set of problems with that just due to the compression on the MXFs and then adding this grade to it. But mm-hmm. either way, even if you bake it in, that point, as long as in your situation, if it was uh, company three doing the pulls, as long as their automated system knew to go in, grab the appropriate BLG and turn that over along with the shot named after the VFX shot name, maybe that could work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's what was happening with the, you know, the additional LUT information uh, as well. It was all kind of an automated process mm-hmm. that, that eFilm had built. And uh, you know, once we got it up and running, it, it worked pretty well. I see. Great. Okay, so just to go back to the premiere thing, for all the people tuning in that are avid editorial teams that haven't really worked in premiere, I'd be curious if you have anything you wanted to share about how the collaboration worked. You know, I'm used to working on with teams that are using a Nexus and, you know, the collaboration is pretty known, but I don't, you know, maybe it's not quite as known to this community as to how it works in premiere. So, uh, so you know, for storage, we ended up using a 128 terabyte uh, solid state storage by Open Drives, um, and we mm. had, yeah, <laughs> it was very nice. We had uh, uh, it was about 10 to 12 machines that were hooked up to this via fiber. You know, Julian, the editor, myself, three assistants, John, his two assistants. Uh, we had a screening room. We had two render machines and a, a download storage machine. So were you at a facility to be able to do all that or like, yeah, no, it was, we, it was a, a, a giant office where we were able to keep the effects and everyone, um, you know, had our own screening room and, and we kind of, they built it beforehand. Cause like on Deadpool, we ended up cutting straight out of blur and they ended up renting a, a building right next to blur where they were able to go ahead and, and put all of Terminator because uh, we knew we were going to be loud and, <laughs> and <laughs> disruptive. Oh, okay. I was just thinking, like, wow, that's that's heavy to 
for a production office or something, right? But, you know, it was fairly simple. I mean, uh, everyone had access to the storage. At the time when we started Terminator, uh, Adobe had just come out with their collaborative and, and project sharing workflow, which is uh, not to be confused, it's kind of like their first iteration of production panels, which is currently out right now. And the collaborative workflow had essentially a master project and that master project inside basically had like alias links to a bunch of other shared projects. So essentially the way it ended up working was like on the root level of the storage, we would have our dailies folder, which, or media folder, which encompassed all of our dailies that we'd receive every day organized by shoot day. Uh, you know, all of the VFX shots, sound effects, any kind of asset that we needed organized neatly so anyone can pull an asset at, at any time. And then in a, a, another folder, which was essentially like the Premiere Projects folder, we had the master project and, you know, start at the beginning of every day, everyone would open the master project and inside there, much kind of like a normal Avid workflow, you would have all of the bins all, or, or projects. We like to, you know, basically it's, it's more projects. Uh, organized neatly. So like, you know, you would see a folder labeled current reels and inside that folder in the master project to current reels, you would have our eight reels, reel one, reel two, reel three, and so forth. And going into the creation of all of these projects, our whole idea was to make as many projects as we wanted, but limit the amount of assets that we had in each project. And, and in doing so, this kind of limited the bloating, allowed for projects opening quickly, and, and efficiently. So it's almost like splitting it up into reels almost? Exactly. So like the real one project inside the master project just had the real one editing sequence, nothing else. We might have had like older edits in there. And if the project started to blow, we would move those into a into an old folder. The you know scene bins folder had every single scene broken up into a project. So ideally making as many projects as possible so that everyone that's connected to the storage could go ahead and get to whatever asset they need without worrying of someone else being in something. And on top of that, Premiere at the time also had the project blocking functionality to where we could go ahead and see who's got what open so we don't have to worry about someone else being in the real one project and, and losing any kind of work. Uh, and I think it, it went, you know, pretty smoothly throughout the entire process. We never ran into any issues. Uh, project load times took, I would say at the most, like 20 seconds or something like that, depending on if something got too big to open, like an editing sequence. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, you know, and, and I think John kind of did some of their stuff a little differently, but for the most part, it was, it was more or less the same. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's the, the kind of the progressive improvements of Premiere. We've all, Matt and I have worked on, you know, a lot of jobs, and it's all been just little improvements here and there. And so one of the things Matt talked about was the, the load times. And so before, that used to take forever. And with this collaborative uh, kind of team project, um, it definitely helped kind of speed the process up. And, and I know that the next, like Adobe Productions, is an evolution on what we worked upon because one of the challenges that we had was the master project was locked and we would always have to, you know, yell across the room like, hey, can I get the master project? Hey, Matt, can I get the master project? Julian, can I get the master project? And then we could unlock it and make changes at the root level. But that has been eliminated and vastly improved with with the new yeah. productions panel that, that Adobe has recently launched. I'm excited to use it. I haven't an had an opportunity yeah. to use it in a, in a collaborative fashion, but uh, a lot of the pain points that we had um, are, are eliminated. And, and when you see these big announcements at like NAB or when they come up with new Creative Cloud releases and they say tested by editorial teams, this is this is us kind of in the trenches and yeah. and figuring out, <laughs> putting you know, it through the ringer. Yeah, putting it through the ringer. And, and, um,
you know, and then they come out with wonderful new features for our next movie. So it's uh, it's it's been a good process, kind of collaborating mm -hmm. with Adobe. That's awesome. What's also interesting about Premiere is all the integrations and things that they're doing, like Open Timeline. I remember at last year's NAB, or not not this virtual one, but the one before that, uh, seeing Gray Meta built right into a window of Premiere, which was awesome. Frame.io also had integration with them, and still does. Uh, and I remember seeing a demo of Dispatch, actually, at NAB a few years back. It was doing some pretty amazing things in Premiere. And the one thing I did find with Dispatch, however, was it seemed really tailored to the job it was being used on. It seemed like it was amazing, but it would be tough to scale and or roll out quickly on other jobs. And I bring this up because, as I understand it, Pix acquired them. And you guys use Pix as your daily streaming service, right? Yes. I see. So I guess I'd just be curious if they got involved in your VFX pipeline in any way. Uh, yeah, big time. It was, you know, I mean, I, I've seen the demos in terms of dispatch as well. Uh, certainly, you know, really amazing automation. And that's kind of circling back to the Fincher team. You know, the benefit that those guys have is, is a lot of them have worked on numerous projects, you know, kind of building momentum and also just really refining their workflow. And so they came up with this product called Dispatch, which was a FileMaker database on steroids that could do all kinds of different things for not only VFX editors, but a lot of their assistants and really streamline and automate uh, a lot of the tedious work that, that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. But they are tailored for a red workflow. They're tailored for very specific things. And I think, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but I think, was this show, Terminator, was originally going to be red? Is that... Uh... Yeah. So originally, before even shooting, we, we did demo testing of it, and it worked great, thinking that it was going to be a red workflow. And then... It, it shifted into all the different formats. So we, we were just going to slide right in there. It was going to be Premiere, it was going to be Red, and it, in theory, it would just kind of be an easy process with what Dispatch currently was. During that time, Pix acquired it, and, uh, and then when everything kind of hit you know, the fan, Pix had to come in and really do a lot of programming to get stuff working for editorial, and then ultimately for me on the VFX side. Uh, and so they were heavily involved. And, uh, you know, I'll say from a VFX standpoint, it was, it, it allowed me to have a database to take advantage of the XML information coming out of Premiere because there's a lot of robust information that I could tap into and could fully populate my database versus in the past, you know, I would, I would be a little bit more limited in terms of EDLs coming out of Avid and I'd have to do a lot more manual entry into my database. Uh, this was able to just pull information off of clips. It could populate my database with all the, the, the core uh, information I needed. And, um, you know, off, I was off and running in terms of getting count sheets and things out to, to vendors. So in that regard, it was it was successful. But we did run into some of that, you know, kind of on rails scenario where I needed to go in and we did a lot of speed ramps on this movie. And I didn't have the ability to go in and modify and manually adjust things within the, the, the database as it currently came to us initially. So. Pix came in, rewrote some of the code, and I was able to get in and do some manual overrides on some of the information. And so that was really helpful. And then kind of piggybacking on what you were talking about, we actually took it to the next level, tapped into the Premiere Panel API, and built some just amazing tools that, that were really a lifesaver for me in terms of you know, automation. And, and, uh, and I can certainly get into that a little bit as well. Wow. So when you say we, Pix actually sent someone to work with you. Yeah, so th so their engineer Nino uh, came in. He kind of got uh, thrown into the fire a little bit, and um, 
you know, it was it was interesting because we're in the middle of making this movie. It's a huge movie, tons of pressure. We have probably 2,300 visual effects shots in the movie. And, you know, I'm getting hundreds of shots a day coming in from, I think we had 14 or 15 different vendors. And so, you know, every once in a while, Nino would be in the room and he's trying to get dispatch working how I need it. But I'd be like, hey, Nino, it'd be really cool if we could do this or if we could do that. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And I'm just thinking, okay, this is never going to materialize. And then, and then, if, like a, a month later, he rolls into my office, installs what's called Pix Auto Cut, which is basically a panel, and it just blows my mind in terms of all the things that I can do. I'm basically, I'm receiving hundreds of shots from vendors. I can drop them into a folder, uh, VFX in folder, select them, open up the reel, and hit cut in, and it will automatically cut all of this stuff in. Uh, appropriately shifting things for handles, which would take me probably uh, you know a couple hours to do. I could do in a matter of minutes with with this tool. It was pretty mind blowing. Yeah, I think for all the people that don't don't specifically work in editorial, let's let's. I mean, that's a, that's a huge deal. I, just to put that into perspective. So normally your process is you would look at the folder full of shots that came in. You'd figure out which reel it came from. You'd track down where it is, and you'd manually cut it into the timeline. Right. Yeah, I mean, like a normal process would be I would I would basically I have kind of one single folder within the project that's VFX in and I would dump all the new shots in, you know, maybe create a folder for for that day, dump all the shots in and uh, and then figure out, OK, I know they're all based on sequence codes and I know these particular sequences are in this reel. So I'd open up that reel um, and then just manually go in and type in sequence code and shot number and then hit maybe like a plus nine to, you know, uh, trim the head and then cut it in, insert, cut it oh, in. as if there was handles on it? Yeah. So it, okay. you know, and so, so doing that for hundreds of shots each day is, is supremely time consuming. And Which is normal too, right? Like that's the typical process. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, that's a typical mm -hmm. workflow. And, you know, and then our, our show was slightly complicated in the regard that there was a lot of kind of repos and reframes and camera shakes and I had to make sure all that stuff matched. And so it, it just was very time consuming. And so what was really nice is I dumped this into a folder select them, open up the reel, hit go, and it basically just cuts everything in. I would cut it into a separate track, verify that everything was correct, and I was on to the next reel. And when you're in a scenario where, you know, we have some supremely complex VFX shots that a lot of our vendors were, you know, they were right up until the 11th hour of the deadline, it would dump to me last second, and you've got all the execs sitting in a room saying, we want to see this stuff, and I have no time to do any of it. And so to have this tool and to cut it in on the fly is 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 pretty phenomenal. That's amazing. And then and then you you said that once you auto drop those into the timeline, is it replacing what's on the timeline or is it essentially putting it on a new track? So I would put it on a new track. I would I would target a track well above and then basically I would drop it down. So I would I, I would go through, I would check everything and then I would just drop it down. Matt was very specific about what tracks or what layers, you know, needed specific shots and VFX or source or, or things like that. And so I would try to keep it as organized as possible. But uh, yeah, it was just a matter of dropping it in and then ultimately, you know, dropping it down to the appropriate track. That's amazing. I feel like you hear about Final Cut 10 doing similar things with integrations and maybe not this specific, but I'm just I'm just saying they're open to integration with people being able to be able to write code or, or add their software in almost like a plugin. I, I feel like Avid needs to get on board with something like this, considering what you just explained was hours 
into seconds? Like how are people, the people that get a taste of that, how are they going to go back? 100%. Yeah, it's hard for me to, to consider going to an avid job because it ultimately is a tremendous amount of manual labor that I, I don't have to do. I mean, you know, just as an example, that was the initial kind of auto cut, but then Nino, he also expanded it where we were able to do. So I, one of my daily jobs is to do reviews with the director and VFX supervisor. And so what I could do was get a list from my VFX production team. And then ultimately uh, I would cut everything in and then ingest this list and then it could target and find these exact shots and then basically build a playlist for me within a couple of seconds where I could just click a button and it would automatically just go to that shot. And I would be in a timeline so the director could see it in context. And that would, you know, something like that would take several hours to organize and facilitate as well. So basically on the fly, I'm dropping in shots. And then a few minutes later, I've got a complete playlist to review all of this stuff in real context. So just to understand exactly how that works. So like normally there'd be a list given to you that, hey, we're about to do a review. Here's a list of all the shots we're going to review. Is that kind of like something did you receive something like that that then hooked into premiere so i would get i think it was a i think it was a csv file i would get from uh from my okay. from my production team and then ultimately i would take that and ingest that into the panel in premiere mm -hmm. and within a matter of seconds it would build a playlist and it would it would basically go through the entire so i would i would create little kind of subfolders with i would copy all the reels in there for the day because i couldn't you know with so many editors you couldn't have all the reels live and so I would basically create kind of a dummy project of the movie. And then I could target those reels uh, with this tool and it would search all the reels looking for the shots that are on that list. And then it would build the playlist from that. And it would also then come back with an error saying, hey, this shot isn't there. So I could quickly go find it and make sure I had the right version. So when we were doing wow. reviews, everything was was accessible and available. So like on you'd you'd have a list of shots. You click on that shot. The playhead jumps to where it is within the timeline. Would you then see it in context, or would only the VFX shot be there on the timeline at that point? It would jump. No, no, the whole reel is there. So okay. it would it would basically jump. The playhead would jump to that exact shot. And then if the director wanted to see it in context, I had it all accessible. It was just right there, and I could just back back up a few clips and play it, and and we would be off and running. Amazing. So then you just loop it for playback and then, oh, let's see in context, all you got to do is roll the playhead back so you got Correct. the entire reel. Correct. And then, and then another component that was hugely time savings was, and this, this really taps into what Matt was doing when we were doing the turnovers for, for DI, you know, Matt was spending just ungodly hours yeah. making sure everything was correct when we were turning everything over. Meaning that all the approved VFX shots are indeed what are in the cut? Yeah, correct. Well, we... We did it two things turning over for DI. You know, we did a layer that the director and editor and, and DI could see what were final VFX and another layer in DI of what were non-final VFX. Always making sure that the non-final had, you know, almost the most recent version and then making sure that the final and constantly updating every single day. And John was not only doing this to one version, which was the theatrical version, but he was also having to do it for the, the China version as well which had different shots. So he had to cut in the, all these VFX shots into, you know, not just eight reels, 16 reels of the movie, which is just doubling the amount of work for him. So this, the auto cut tool really saved time in that sense. Wow. What, what's the point of keeping the old versions that are, you know, the same content, but just no longer approved shots? Is it like, wh why would you keep that out of curiosity? Is it just so that you can go back and compare if someone questions what the update was? Uh, well, sometimes it is. Sometimes I mean, sometimes you're getting, you know, you're getting like anim, yep. 
you're getting you're getting different versions of shots and so it's like we you know we don't necessarily know what is supposed to be in there unless it's coming from VFX production and the supervisor. And so this is just kind of a double check. When you're in those situations, and traditionally there's a lot of pressure, I like to be prepared and have everything kind of accessible. And so I, I just want to make sure that it's all available and right there on the timeline. And then ultimately, you know, Matt and I would come down and collapse everything when we had a little bit more of a definitive list or a screening or something like that. But, uh, you know, ultimately at the end, uh, you know, shots are flying in fast and furious and you're just trying to cut in and keep everything up to date as quickly as possible. And then getting a list to be able to verify from VFX production was, was um, you know. So, so going back to the tool, what would happen is, is, so Matt was spending hours and hours and hours doing this and manually going through and verifying every single one of these shots based on the VFX production team's list. And then I said, Nino, can you make something? And then a couple of days later, he comes back, and we we ingest <laughs> these we ingest these lists in, and boom, within you know uh, 20 minutes, we can go through all all of the reels, the the domestic and China version, and verify that everything is correct. And Matt has everything he needs to be able to send the EDLs over to to Company yep. Three. Wow. And was that a similar thing where you, you ingest the list, it creates its own list within the bin that you could essentially click on and it jumps to Correct. that point in the timeline. You confirm, yep, yep, that's the shot moving on. And it would, and then you could also see where there were errors too. And then it got to a yeah. point where he had scripted something where if it wasn't in the timeline, you could say, basically, I forgot what the button was, but you could click a button and it would go into my VFX folder, which search the entire folder, find it and automatically cut it in. Mm -hmm. It's a huge time saver. (laughs) So, so, I mean, in a, in a ideal scenario, what would be amazing, you know, is, is ultimately like if we had this tool a little bit more robust and, and I just was able to compare a timeline from like today versus last week and it could automatically flag, this has changed by a certain amount of frames it could auto generate a count sheet and then trigger a pull to to the the, the vendor to uh, to get that going, and that's that's within the realm of possibility. And mm-hmm. you know, it would it would certainly take a lot of the kind of the tedious stuff and help eliminate the human error, especially you know the hours that we worked on this movie. It, it was pretty yeah. insane, and yeah. you know, mistakes were made just because we were exhausted. So you know, kind of taking sure. out some of that stuff and letting the computer do the heavy lifting would be uh, would yep. be hugely beneficial. Especially with something as tedious as looking at these really long file names and like your lists being massive as to how many shots are being turned over. I'm sure there was a lot of VFX on this job. Yeah, 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 for sure. We we had I think we had about 2,300 shots yeah. with uh, the domestic version. I think had 1,900, and then the China version added you know several hundred more uh, just for kind of variations and. I know that you're. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, I'd love to ask you about that before we before we get into the China thing, though. Um, just to understand the process that went into turning over VFX pulls, I'd be curious. So, you said earlier that the LTOs were sent to Company Three. They probably yeah. put those on some type of storage, or maybe they just sat in an LTO library. But was it Portal, or how did you communicate or request the actual pulls? So we did portal, uh, and you know it was a pretty standard kind of EDL process where I would we would build timelines and uh, and then just export uh, EDLs out, and then uh, there was, sometimes we'd have to do a little bit of customization in terms of the EDL, but send it over to portal, and and it was a pretty uh, streamlined process to to get it out to everyone. 
I see. And what what do you mean by send it out? Did you log into something and or was it an e- like you emailed it or? Uh, yeah, there was there was a website, um, a portal website that I basically would would just copy over the EDL, drag it into a, a drop folder, and uh, and then ultimately that would auto generate the pull sequence to get going. And then once once that was done, um, it would trigger and send an email to the vendor as well as us to be able to download the XRs, uh, QuickTime reference, you know, all the pertinent LUTs and, and things of that nature to, to get moving on the VFX shot. Gotcha. Cool. It seems like those kinds of systems right now are definitely gaining a lot of traction because you don't need someone in the office swapping drives, plugging, plugging things in. It's, you know, for, you know, I, have, I have a similar system I manage and through this whole COVID situation, it's it's been very helpful to not have to have people in the office to deal with those requests. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're sending hundreds hundreds of shots that John's you know turning over and stuff like that to, to be able to automate that and have it go through, it's such a time saver. Yeah, and there's a lot of opportunity for human error in those in that kind of a workflow. Normally, when you do it manually, because you can screw up. Are you setting your render specs wrong? Did you screw up how you? created the project and whatever software you're using each various camera format and codec and resolution may require a different type of workflow in the sense that you know when i was on mr robot they didn't want all the 8k files turned over at full res but everything lower could go out at full res or you know maybe mm-hmm. we had to build a lot of what what company three calls recipes essentially and so it was very very similar because you know, you have so many different variations, especially with all the camera formats and everything that we had going on and the common top offsets. And, and uh, it, it definitely took some time up front, but ultimately saved a ton of time in the, in the long run. Once everything was running and pulling, we didn't really run into a lot of issues. So Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you put in the work up front. Mm-hmm. And as long as you specify everything, then at that point, it takes that human error out until, of course, you throw a new variable at it that you didn't predict reshoots yeah yeah or something yeah yeah so back to the china thing you um you mentioned when we were talking about the vfx shots coming back or when you were looking at them and you were you were um monitoring different versions you mentioned that the content was sometimes different i'd I'd just be curious what you mean by that like was there actually a different there different shots that were going to china or what 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 do you mean by that I'm going to pass this off to Matt, but so, so Matt was, he was assistant editor, but also he, he got a credit of associate editor because he had probably the most unglamorous job in the world. And that was, <laughs> that was cutting uh, the China version of this movie. And so essentially there were slight kind of alterations that needed to be made. And it was, you know, nobody really wanted to, to pay a whole lot of attention to it. So it was very kind of unglamorous for Matt to have to deal with it. But he was a trooper and did a really good job. And so I'll, I'll let him kind of explain what that was all about. Okay. Yeah. So, so a little, you know, pretext of why we needed to do this is China only allows a certain number of, of rated R movies into the country a year. Uh, so the, the easiest way to get it in is to essentially do kind of like a PG-13 version of the movie. And the, the goal is to obviously make a, a toned down version of Terminator because Terminator was a dark, intense and, and violent movie. So we, we had to look at it kind of accumulatively and bring that tone down, but do it in a way where we had the least minimal changes possible. Uh, so this meant through, you know, going through VFX and, and having VFX help or making minimal tweaks here and there just to bring that down. So this kind of meant chasing the edit weekly, you know, Tim and Julian and, and the producers, they would all do their cuts and then 
every week or, or bi-weekly, I would end up going in and, and essentially folding their changes into the China edit uh, of wherever changes needed to be made. And essentially, once we had a cut of the film of the theatrical version, the rated R version, we had help from people at various studios that would help give us kind of guidelines of as far as like what we should focus on. Uh, what we should kind of tone down and, and some examples would be like the removal of nudity or profanity, violence and, and gore and bring all that kind of down. Really? But how did you know that you weren't one of the allowed rated R movies of that year? Did you essentially get told we've hit our quota for rated R movies? It's time to, you know, you guys, sorry, guys, you got to make it PG. <laughs> It's, it's complicated because because you're only allowed a certain number of, of movies into China a year. You can't go ahead and, and submit a movie at the very end. And then, you know, you got to kind of look at it in the sense of if you submit the movie and China says no, well, then what do you do? Do you spend another eight months and making changes? So there's there's kind of this thing where it's you've got to kind of put your best foot forward and make a guess as far as which direction you should go. And because we were already in post and everything at that point, it's let's just go ahead and make a version that we know can get in. And that's a, a toned down version. I see. And that was the focus was make it PG. It wasn't necessarily that you were altering PG-13. the content and changing the story in any way. It was just more Correct. toning it down. Correct. Exactly. I mean, really, the, the beats and the story was all there. And when you watch the theatrical version versus the PG-13 version of the movie, you didn't really notice a lot of the changes. The movie still played great. Everything was still there. It just, you know, you didn't have and I don't know if I can say this, but you only had one F word. You know, you only had a, a, a few shits, a few, you know, whatever. It, it was just, it was toned down. And, and luckily, you know, going into production, everyone knew that, well, eventually we need to go ahead and make a, a China version of this. So they went ahead and, and shot clean takes of any kind of time an actor or an actress said some kind of profanity. They did a clean version. Oh, wow. So on set, they roll once and they say, okay, everybody, we're going again. Yep. But now we're doing the PG version. Change what you say. Yeah, because even if you don't do, you know, a China version, usually for like home video, you mm. need to do clean versions. And, you know, instead of saying shit and then it's like you ADR dub shoot later on or something mm -hmm. like that, where it just takes you out of the movie you can go ahead and, and do a clean version where you don't have to worry. It's an easy swap where you, you know, instead of changing angles and recutting the scene, you just put the clean version of the same angle, if not almost the same identical performance into that slot. Um, and that way it keeps the movie intact, keeps the feel of everything there. Um, and, and it really worked well, you know. And then for VFX, you know, we had a lot of help from VFX and like some examples would be like the Grace arrival scene at the very beginning of the movie when, when Grace pops out of the orb and, and falls down, she, she's naked. Mm -hmm. uh, and then she, she gets entangled with the cops and has a scuffle and stuff like that. And we had a lot of help with VFX here because we were also able to kind of cheated a little bit because it was already a dark scene we could hide her with the shadows a bit you know darken her a little bit and that way like on the big wides you're not seeing anything mm -hmm. so we were able to kind of like figure out creative ways to did she hide still certain... kill the police officer though because that that was a pretty crazy scene did that she she still fought them yeah yeah okay. but you know it was it wasn't a violent, you know, the... the oh, uh, she didn't actually kill and, them. I, I I was wrong about that. She never oh, killed no, them. Yeah, yeah. She she just kind up. of like... Yep, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so we were able to hide all this stuff and kind of bring that tone of that scene down. You know, violence and gore would be like another great example. It'd be like the end of the movie when the T-800 and, and the Rev-9 and Grace 
and Danny and, and Sarah all, are all battling. It's an intense, dark scene, but it's, it was also a very emotional scene. Like that's the, the sacrifice of the T-800 and, and the Rev-9. So you wanted to keep that as, as intact as possible mm-hmm. to really give that emotion. So like for that, VFX was able to help us where, you know, when Arnold gets blown up and he's, you know, his skin's all torn up and, and bloody and, and kind of gory, VFX was able to help take the red and desat it and darken it to make him look more charred versus like a fresh wound. I see more, um, more robot <laughs> Exactly. And that's, and you know, that's one of the other benefits with a movie like this is you can get away with kind of like mutant, not mutant, mutant. It's more like when you're harming humans, that's when it's the issue. Yeah. But you know, with Arnold, he had flesh skin. So you wanted to take that gore factor down I see. when the Rev nine stabs grace you know, and you see a blade come out her back, you know, luckily we had multiple different angles. So, you know, instead of staying in a profile where you see that blade exit, we would cut to the front, you know, behind the Rev-9. And that way you still get the feeling of, well, he's stabbing her. You're just not seeing that exit wound. Yeah, which probably makes a pretty big difference, though, emotionally on people that are watching it. It's, you know, it, it definitely tones it down, but uh, it's, it was funny. I, when, when I first got put onto the task of doing this, I was thinking, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Um, <laughs> and, and thinking, you know, this is, this is going to be crazy. It's going to be totally different. And by the time that we got through it and did a full pass and stuff like that, and, you know, we had help from people at different studios giving me the guidelines and, and I would, you know, show the movie to them and get their opinion. It was the same movie. Oh, really? uh, okay. it, it didn't feel drastically different. You know, the tone was still there. It was still intense, but it was just brought down to a level where it, it just kind of slid by. Don't don't um, don't but, don't tell Tim yeah. and Julian that it was the same. Yeah. movie. <laughs> the editor and it director. Was, yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, taking into account of all this is you've got the producers and you've got Tim and Julian who are killing themselves trying to make this movie as great as possible. And the last thing I want to do is go ahead and rip it apart and to try to make this China version. So really it was like chasing their edit as much as possible so that it was, you know, almost identical. Like every week I would gang the R version and the PG-13 version and I would go almost like cut to cut making sure it was the exact same thing. And if there was something that needed to change, then I would would go ahead and make that change there and, and go forward. So it ended up being the same length. It wasn't like you actually had to cut certain things out. It was just more that you changed the angles that were shown and and, and it was toned down the VFX. No, it was it was a little bit shorter. Yeah, I think I think ultimately it was like okay. five minutes shorter, something like that. Uh, but you know, in the grand scheme of, uh, uh, I think it was two hundred eight or something like that. I think the R version was like two hundred three or something like that. So I mean, when you, when you look at the whole thing collectively, it was it was pretty close. Just had had a few things removed and I see. and whatnot. Hmm, that's interesting. I feel like there's gonna be a lot of people listening that didn't really know that was a thing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a much more common thing because obviously you know like you said it's. China's a, a big box office out there, so do you take a chance of, of submitting something that doesn't get in, or do you go ahead sure. and, if you can make a version of the movie that's that's as close to the rated R version, just toned down a little bit, then that makes the most sense, especially if it's planned out properly. Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, John and Matt. Yeah, no, yeah thank you very no much. Problem. Appreciate it. 
Your insight and wisdom is very much appreciated. And thank you very much, everyone else, for tuning in. Your support is also very much appreciated. And stay tuned for the reveal of what our next guest and episode will be on social media. And like I mentioned before, be sure to check out our website at hpaonline.com to see all of the great content that the HPA team is putting out there because they are actually putting a lot of content out during this whole situation with COVID and there's tons of virtual stuff coming out. So be sure to check that out. And until next time, that's a wrap.